had the best hot chocolate like two days ago. I don't know how they made it, but it was, it was beautiful hot chocolate. But I'm excited. Christmas is coming. And what makes Christmas so amazing is that it reminds us of the God we serve who is amazing. And what I love, and this is how cool our God is, this Daniel series, we're actually going to a message that connects perfectly to the birth of Christ. And I'm excited for that. It's like the Bible actually, you know, works together as this one whole redemptive story. So tonight, I, I want us to see that there is a plan here with David's life that points us to Christ. So go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel, and we'll be in chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right, so here's what I want you to do. I know Pastor Ben literally just made you do this not too long ago, but I'm going to make you do it again. All right, I want you to look to your neighbor, and I want you to answer this question, okay? I want you to tell me, what is on your bucket list? What is on your bucket list? So a bucket list is something you want to do before you die, before you kick the bucket, right? All right, what is something you want to do, okay? I'm going to count to three. You're going to tell your neighbor. Ready? One, two, three, go. Thank you, Zeke. That was good. (laughs) All right, so I, I, I got a few. I, I was able to, in college, I was thinking through this. I was able to, in college, complete two things on my bucket list. And they're the weirdest things someone could have on their bucket list. The first one is the largest filing cabinet in the world. Go ahead and hit me with that picture, Steve. All right? You're like, it exists. It's a real thing. It's in Burlington, Vermont, and it's this huge filing cabinet. And you say, why would they do that? And I don't know, but that's what makes it great. And what you do is you're supposed to like bring a sticker and then come right up to it and try to jump as high as possible, put a sticker there. This is actually an older picture, I think. It's even even tall. I should have gotten how tall it is. But I was able to see that when I was like a senior or junior in college. And it, it made me really happy for some reason. I was excited. And then the next thing, the next picture is the Utz factory, okay? Now, this, this doesn't seem like super exciting to you, but it's really exciting to me because it was in Hanover, uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so me and my, my wife, when we were dating, we went there for a trip, and I knew about this for a while, and it's just like a huge chip factory, and you go through, and this is the best part. You walk in, and there's just this line of chips, and I, I stared at him just like this little girl is actually. I was just amazed. There was this many chips. I mean, they, it's like all the brands of chips that Utz made. And then you go through this factory and watch how they make all the chips. Then you get a free bag of chips. It's like really small, mostly air, but it's free, so that was nice. And then, then there's like a store right around that's like a, an outlet store for Utz chips. And then you go there and you can get like all sorts of weird chips. They had like Old Bay seasoning. Uh, they had, like, they gave us free, you know, those giant tubs of cheese balls. It was like those giant tub of cheese balls, but it was, like, dipped in Cheeto, flaming Hot Cheeto dust. And it, we got it for free, and that was great. That was just a memory that stuck in my head. Some of you are like, I don't want to go there, Miles. But it was, like, really exciting for me. I was like, that is the highlight of my life. I still talk about it to my wife. She's like, you really liked that date. And I was like, yeah, I did. It was awesome. I got chips. And then something uh, I want to do, I think the next picture that's still up on my bucket list is I would love to go to Israel. How many of you have been to Israel before? Yeah? Oh, you guys, that's awesome. That's a blessing. My wife's been to Israel, and I haven't. Isn't that, that's just unfair. Uh, but, no, it, it, it's something that would be amazing to uh, go to the, the Holy Land and be able to go where Jesus walked. But my whole point in telling you all of that, right, is that everyone, whether you're, you're really young, right, or whether you're really old, everyone has dreams. They say, I hope this happens before I die. Before I die, I want to. 
Or it could be even, let's go deeper than that. It says, I, I, I feel like my purpose is blank. I would love to blank. I, I feel called to, and then you fill in the blank. And there's not anything at all wrong with having those dreams. What, what we see in, in David's life tonight is that David had one of those dreams, one of those moments, one of those things he desired, one of those things he said, hey, I'm, I'm getting older. This is what I want to accomplish before I die. And, and what happens is sometimes we have those dreams, and what happens is those dreams sometimes get crushed. And what happens is when they get crushed, they don't go the way we planned. It kind of feels like a, like a punch in the gut when those dreams don't work out. And when, it, when a dream happens, and I'm not talking necessarily like superficial, like the Uts factor. I'm thinking of these big dreams, these big things I wanted to do with my life. And it doesn't work out. And I say, well, why, why did this happen? Or, or why didn't this happen? This was supposed to happen and this didn't. And then what that leads me to is it makes me ask questions about God's will. I ask the question, as all of you have at some point, is God, what are you up to? Like, well, what's, what's the plan here? I thought we were going that way. Like everything was pointing that way. All the road signs were pointing that way. And then we ended up going this way. Why? And I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily to ask why. But I want us to get our big statement today. Our big point today is we can find confidence. We can have surety in God's sovereign plan. That God has this plan that's bigger. And we can do that by modeling David's interactions with God in 2 Samuel 7. And once again, we see that David's life is just a different life. It doesn't go as planned as none of our lives do. Right? We, we can't plan what's going to happen the next few days. We have our calendar, right? But we don't know what's going to happen. And David was there. But we see David has an interaction with God. And it gives us a model of how to respond when things don't go according to plan. Or even bit bigger is when our dreams don't work out. And that leads us to our first point. Before we get there, let's pray and bless the Lord for this message. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift that we're able to come to your house and be able to worship you. Lord, I thank you for the life of David that we get to study and get to see how your hand guides and works. Lord, please help us to be able to have open hearts, let the Holy Spirit work, and let us see how amazing your word is and how it's applicable to us even today. In your precious holy name, amen. All right, so we got our first point. We see that David makes a sincere request. David makes a sincere request. And we see this in starting in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. Look at it with me. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And we'll stop there for a moment. And this, this is weird to me. It's a weird situation that we haven't been in. David is at peace. We haven't seen that through our whole series at all. David has been at anything but peace. I mean, think about what we've covered. He fought Goliath. He had a war with the Philistines. That's just like always there. At one point, he was living with the Philistines. There was a long time he's been running from Saul who wanted him dead. Peace and David didn't really seem to go together. They seem to be two opposites. But we see here in verse 1 that it came to pass when the king sat in his house. That shows us first he's actually in his house. There's domestic peace going on. He's not in a different country at this point. He's not in a cave. He's not with a different person. He's at home. He's with his family. It seems safe at the moment. 
And then we read on, it says, And the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. We see that not only was it domestic, he had national peace. No one was attacking him for like once in his life. Because he's always on guard. He was a king, he was a warrior, he knew that he always had to be ready. But finally he was just able to breathe. You know, I don't know if you've ever been on a roller coaster and like you have the whole line that you're waiting to get on the roller coaster and you're all pumped up and your adrenaline's going and then you get on the roller coaster and then you go through it and you go up the twists and turns and drop 300 feet and then finally it comes to a stop. And when that stop happens, you finally can say, I can breathe again. My stomach went back into my stomach. My stomach's no longer my chest, right? It's in my stomach again. I, I can breathe. I, I can take some peace. I can breathe a sigh. And that's what's happening. David is in what, what I, I think is an interlude in his life. There's kind of like a break happening. And what happens during these interludes in our life is we often take these times to rest, remember, and, and reflect. What King David is doing right here, he's thinking about the past, the present, and the future. He's thinking about who he is and what he's done. And we've all had these times. It might be for you a, a vacation where you're able to just get away from the hustle of life and just able to go with your family and breathe a little bit. It could be a, a break. I know for school you guys finally get a break coming up soon and get to breathe. And it could be a sabbatical, it could be whatever. It could be, I know, I know camp often with the teens is a, teens is a time for that, that break, because we take the teens and we get them away from the, kind of the pressures of life for a minute, get them away from electronics, just give them the gospel, let them have fun. It's a busy time. It's not really a break in, physically in that sense, but it's a time where they're just able to kind of reflect. You know, and that's where David is at at this point. He's able to just say, I have rest. And as he's going through this and as he's reflecting, he starts moving toward a decision. He starts saying, this is what I'm deciding to do. That kind of goes kind of with the camp illustration. At the end of camp, there's usually a time where, where you could uh, take a stick and throw it in the fire. You could take, take something and nail it to the cross. It's kind of like a time where you've had that, that week to reflect and then you get moved to a decision. And that's what David is doing right here. He's reflecting, he's thinking, and now he's moved. He's been prompted. He's saying, there's something I feel I should do. Even more so, he says, I think I'm supposed to do something for the Lord. Okay, well, what is that? We see that in verse 2. That the king said unto Nathan. Now, now remember this name. We're going to get this later on in our series next, next year as we continue on. But Nathan's important. This is our introduction to him. But he's a prophet. And he's, he's David's friend. And he's a good friend. David doesn't have a lot of those. But he goes to Nathan. He says, Nathan, I have an idea. Here's my idea. And we see that David desires to build God a house. And what does he say? He says, I dwell in a house of cedar. And what that means is he lives in a gorgeous house. Like, it's beautiful. He's the king. He's not living in some shack that's falling apart. All right? It is beautiful. And he loves it. He likes it. Just as any of us who have nice houses like nice houses. It's not a bad thing. But he's saying, I have this really nice house, but I'm looking at where the Ark of the Covenant is. I'm looking at this tent that we made for the Ark of the Covenant. And God seems, in his presence, seems to be dwelling in, in curtains, he says. It seems like some raggedy old tent. While well, I have this beautiful palace, I should go make God a temple. Make him a good temple. Make it out of gold. Make it something amazing. Something that people, it's just breathtaking. And he asks Nathan's advice, which is a wise thing. And Nathan says to the king, verse 3, go and do it. Go do what is in your heart. Do what you've been prompted to do, for the Lord is with thee. He says, hey, this is, this is approved at the moment. So David is going on. He thinks this is a good idea. Nathan sees no problem with it. And, and what I want to make sure we really 
picture here before we move on is that there is, from what I see, is that there's no ill motive in what David wants to do. Sometimes we see David and he has mixed motives, like when he was getting the Ark of the Covenant and bringing it. It wasn't all for, for God's glory. There was some selfish motivation. But what we see here in David's life is that he's very much wanting to bring the glory to God. He says, I want to give my God a beautiful house. You know, we've all kind of had these heart workings where we feel prompted. We feel our hearts pricked by the Holy Spirit to go do something for the Lord. We've, we feel like we're supposed to go do this. It could be that I'm supposed to go talk to that person about the gospel and the Holy Spirit's moving me towards that. It could be even as big as, Lord, I feel like you're calling me to go into the mission field, right? There's these things where he prompts us and leads us and we say, I feel like the Lord is leading me to, and then you fill in the blank. And David wasn't wrong. He, he seemed to be actually on a good track here. We're like, okay, David, you're, you're doing a good thing. But then God responds, and that leads us to our second point. We see the sovereign, the sovereign response of God. And that starts us in verse 4. And it came to pass that night. So this is like right after it happened. Just a few, few hours have passed. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant... David, thus saith the Lord, shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in. And what that's saying is, is the Lord says no. It's kind of like, oh, oh. You know, a lot of people get shocked that, that, that God can say no to us, you know? Sometimes we feel like we, we give a prayer request, and then God says no, and we're like, what? You can actually say no? Like, there, you get a choice in this, God? You can't just do whatever I command you to do, right? So there, there's a lot of times we, we get shocked to this. But God says no. He says no to David. And who is David? A man after his own heart. And, and, and David just like wanted to do good for his God. And it's a valid question to ask, God, why did you say no? You know, God doesn't ever have to explain himself, but he does. And he actually gives David three reasons why he's saying no to the building of a temple. We see the first in verses 5 through 6. And what that shows us is that he's telling us, hey, the Ark of the Covenant has been in a tent for, since the time of Exodus, since Moses. Like, it's always been in a tent, and it's okay that it's in a tent. I don't have a press need. God's basically saying, if it was an immediate concern, if I needed it into a palace, into a temple, more so, then I would have commanded it. But we, what we see also is that David actually already made a tent not too long ago. In 1 Chronicles 16.1, we see that David already redid the tent and kind of made it a little bit better than it was. Because remember, they finally got the Ark of the Covenant back and they made a whole new tent. So God's basically saying, reason number one, this isn't an immediate concern, David. And then number two, verse seven, let's look at it. Verse seven, we see God's continuing talking. He says, In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, which, whom I commanded, to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? And, and what, he, what he's saying there is that he wanted it to be movable. He's saying that it was movable for a reason, because Israel kept traveling and moving around. And God said, I've had it as a tent because a tent is really portable. You can move it. You can get it to where you need to go. And that's what God commanded then. And then we see reason three, and this is kind of one of the biggest reasons and the one we're most familiar with. It's, we see it not actually in, in, in 2 Samuel, but in 1 Chronicles 22.8. And we see David actually explains this as he's talking to Solomon about the reason he can't build the temple. And he says, But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house in my name. 
because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. And that, that's the reason, right? God, God says, okay, it's not the time yet, not yet, but also, David, you're not going to be the one to do it. And the reason why is because you've shed too much blood. You, you were a warrior. You went out and fight. You went out and killed, like, a lot of people. Like, not just, like, one or two, which would still be, like, a big thing for us, right, if you killed one or two people. But he's killed a lot of people, and he's ordered people to kill a lot of people. And there's a lot of blood on David's hands. He was a warrior. And as we think through that, we're like, well, yeah, God, you're, you're the one who told him to do that. You're the one who told him to go be that warrior. And now, now you're kind of, it seems like you're, you're blaming him and David's being punished for doing what you said. And it seems like what God is doing is he's taking away something good from David and he's taking away. And it's kind of like, why, God? He just, just say yes. This is, he's doing something good for you, God. Why, why are you making this more difficult? And as we know, that's, that's not at all how God's operating, but that's how our, our finite mind can sometimes interpret these things. Mind can, at least. And I, the problem with, with human thinking is sometimes we, we mix up what we think about love. And we say, if you love, then love is automatically associated with giving. Okay? If you love someone, then you'll give them something. Right? And the more you give someone something, the more you love them. But that's not necessarily true. And we sometimes think... It, Love is associated with giving, and then hating and not liking someone is that you take away something from them. And what we see is David took away an opportunity, or more so, correction, God took away an opportunity for David, so God must hate David. But what we see is that God's actually, you know, believe it or not, sovereign, and he's above all, and he actually had this greater plan for David. And God knew what was best for David. And he had this greater plan. And, and he knew that, that the best thing for David and the best thing for us might not be what we ask him to do. Sometimes the best thing for God to do for us is to take something away. And it's so interesting to me because David is asking and God's saying, no, I'm taking away this opportunity. And, and sometimes we're thinking about this in David's terms, but think about this in your life. When you ask God to do something for you, or are you, you don't even necessarily ask sometimes, but this opportunity that you had gets taken away. This thing gets taken away. This person gets taken away. And we kind of feel, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you take it away? What have I done wrong? I must have messed up somewhere, and sometimes maybe. But just because God takes something away doesn't mean it's a bad thing. You know, if I saw one of my if I saw my, my two, middle school, two middle school boys in, in teen group, right, and I care about the two middle school boys, but I walk in, I see them, and they're like, they have a pair of scissors, and they're just playing catch with the scissors, and then I'm like, but I, I care about them. I don't want to take stuff away from them. That, that, would, be, that would be wrong, because I love them, so I want to give them something. I give them three more pairs of scissors to keep playing catch. Everyone would be like, no, Miles, that's probably not a good youth pastor move. You probably shouldn't do that, right? But what I would do, right, hopefully, right, is I would go and take the scissors away. And no one there would be like, oh, Miles hates the teens. It's like, no, he, he doesn't want them playing with scissors. Like, I, that's probably not something we should be doing, throwing catch with scissors, right? Just because you take something away, just because you pull the kid out of the street when they want to play in the street doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And what my whole point in all of this is that we don't understand always how God works but he's always doing what's best for us and for his glory. And what he's doing right now is he's redirecting his servant, David, to something better. He said, David, I'm saying no, 
so I can say yes to this. And he has this greater plan. He has a plan that's way better than David's. He has a plan that's way better than our plan. It's God's plan. And God promises to build David a house. That's the reverse of our first point, right? David desired to build a house, but then God says, I'm actually going to build you a house, David. It kind of flips. And what that means by house is a dynasty. It's a royal lineage. And what happens right here is an amazing, theological, awesome part of Scripture where we have a covenant that's made with David. And when we hear a covenant in Scripture, we should never think of, oh, it's a pinky promise, right? No, it's way deeper than that. It's this agreement that was made, this solidified agreement. And we've seen these covenants before. We see the Adamic covenant, we see the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then eventually the New Covenant, which we'll get to later. But Scripture is filled with these, these promises that David made. And what I want to read is the four promises that God gives David. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8. Now therefore so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep goat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and I've cut off all thy enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. And when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I, shall, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All right, let's take those apart. That's a lot. Okay, but we see the first promise that he makes is in verse, verse 9, at the end of verse 9. And what we see actually in verse 8, I don't want to skip over it, is that it's saying, God, you've been sovereign in the past, and now you're going to be sovereign in the future. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, I've taken care of the past. I'm giving you the promise in the present. Here's what's going to happen in the future. Here's these promises. And then look with me at verse 9. We see that he promises David that he will make David a great name. What does that mean? It means a great reputation. That people would not forget King David. And you know what? We haven't forgot King David. We have a, literally a whole series about King David. I think that promise was fulfilled. That he has this great name. All right, well, next one. So he has a great name, and then number two. Then we see that in verse, verse 10, the first part of it. That I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. And we see that he's making a home for Israel. You know, Israel had been wandering for so long in so many different times and so many different situations and scenarios. But now there's going to be this home that they have forever. And then we see him at the end of verse 10, he continues on and makes this the third promise. And that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And it continues in verse 11. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, I have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. So there's a great name for David. And then for Israel, there's going to be a home, a home forever. And then they're also going to have peace from their enemies. There'd be a time of peace. And it would be peace in the new age to come. That there would be this forever peace that comes. And then we see in verse 12, the fourth promise. 
we see that he promises an everlasting kingdom for David. And there's, there's kind of two parts for that. And when you hear what we should do as, as Christians, as we read the Bible, we should always look for a way that, that points to Christ. Because anytime we're reading scripture, it's all pointing to this redemption story. It's pointing back to Christ. That's how God made it work. And that's what this is doing. Our signal should be going off here. We see first that in this promise of an everlasting kingdom, there's two parts to it. First says, hey, David, you're going to have a son named Solomon. And Solomon would eventually go build the temple. And Solomon would have his own kingdom, continue the reign of that kingdom. And that David would have the son, that his lineage would not die. But even more than that, what's even cooler than that, this is exciting, is that it wouldn't just be one son that he has, but that this kingdom, this lineage, would continue and last forever. That this line of David would not die. You know, that's not like a typical promise. Think about like the king of England, right? It's a king now, right? Yeah, yeah. The king of England. His line's not going to last forever. It's going to die out, just as every other king in history's line has died out. This isn't a typical thing, but, you know, nothing is typical when Christ enters the scene. Because that's what it's pointing to. It's pointing to Christ, the king, the king of kings. And we see that this line, this line of David continues with Christ. So let, let's, let's review that. That's a lot. We see that he has first a promise of a great name, and then going to Israel, a promise of a home for Israel. Number three, a uh, a peace from, from Israel's enemies. And the number four, David, your kingdom's going to last forever. You know, these are like big promises. Sometimes we take that for granted. Like really, when you really think about this. Like if I went up to you just like in casual conversation and said, hey, I can do all four of these promises for you. None of you would be like, oh, really, Miles? You can do that for me? You're like, no, you can't. You, you, you can't do that. You can't make any of those things happen. You're right. I can't. None of us can. That's what's so cool about it. If, if, if God was not sovereign and all-powerful, he couldn't fulfill these promises. He would be making empty promises that we know would fail. But a sovereign God, the sovereign God, could orchestrate all of history to fulfill these four promises. And that's how big our God is. We don't serve a wimpy God who can just make these half-hearted promises that we really hope happen. No, when he makes a promise, he's going to make everything work to fulfill that promise and to bring it to pass. When God says, I'm doing this, he does it. There's no if about it. That's how good our God is. And it's amazing because it's a beautiful picture of God and that he's saying, I'm not being this mean dictator. David, I care about you. And, and I, I kind of thought of it this way. David, you asked for the chocolate bar. I'm going to give you a whole chocolate fountain, okay? You asked really small things, like, oh, you want this little thing, David, like this house to do for me? I appreciate that. But what I'm going to give you is so much better because I have an even greater plan in store for you, David. David, you're thinking too small at the moment. Here's what I'm doing. And he's not insulting David. He's not even mad at David. He's not scolding. He's teaching. He's saying, I have a great promise, David. Here's what amazing thing I'm doing. Then look with me at verse 14. And he says, And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chastise him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. What does that mean? I think this is so cool. Because in a covenant, usually there's this, if, if, the one of the parties messes up, the covenant falls apart. But what this is saying is, David, even if you mess up and you're not perfect, I'm still going to discipline you and bring you back so that this covenant can stay and can never be removed. This covenant isn't going anywhere. And 
He kind of gives the reason why. My, my mercy is not going to depart from you. It's right there with you. My steadfast love, that's what the word mercy means, is with you. It's not being removed. God is with him forever. We see that in verses 16 through 17. He's not going anywhere. You know, God said no to David. But there was this much greater plan in store. He said, not this way, but this way. You know, this, this brought to mind a, a story I read when um, I, was, I was like in fifth grade, maybe, and it stuck in my head. It's the story of Amy Carmichael. I don't know if you ever heard of her, but she's a missionary. And when she was a, a little girl, and a teenager even, she really had this, this desire to have, this dream even, to have blue eyes. She had brown eyes. She was born with brown eyes, and she really wanted blue eyes. She, she maybe had friends that had blue eyes. She had people around her that had blue eyes. She just thought it was really pretty. And she would go and, and regularly pray to God saying, Lord, I would love to have blue eyes. Like, that's my desire. I don't know how you would make that happen, Lord, but somehow give me blue eyes. You know what she didn't get? Blue eyes. God, God said no, okay? God could have, in his power, very easily made that change, right? But he said no. And what we see is that later on moving in her life, she got older and she felt called to the mission field and went to be a missionary in India. And as the story goes, is that she, she had real dark hair and she had even, even a dark complexion and she had brown eyes. And what, what happened is, is when she went to India, it was much easier for her to assimilate in there. Like they accepted her much easily because she didn't look as different from them. Now, now she was a white woman from America, I believe America, but she... she kind of blended in with the Indian people. They didn't think of her as just some weird person. She was still a foreigner, yes, but she was easily transitioned into the, the Indian world. And because of that, and it's such a small thing, it seems like, but she was just uh, on fire for the Lord in India. She spread the gospel. She was really, really focused on women and children who were abused, who, people who were in orphanages, kids who were abandoned and thrown on the side of the street, uh, women who were just mistreated horribly, and she cared about all of them. She would make orphanages, make homes for them, and just really love them. And, you know, what, 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 it's just a, it's just a, it seems like a small story, but it's actually huge, I think, is that she really wanted something, but God said no, because he knew what was happening down the line, that there was a better plan. You know, our God sees way more of the picture than we do. And sometimes we just see this part, and we're really focused on this part, and we think this is the most important part, because it's all we can see, and we make all these requests to fix this part, but we don't even see the full big picture. God does. And when he answers your prayers, whether it's a yes, no, not yet, maybe, he's working a bigger plan. Now here's what, what's, this, I love the story because we have an amazing God who's making these promises, but then I love David's response here. Because our question in our minds that should be going is, well, how does David respond to this? Because it's always kind of up in the air. Sometimes David does like the really right thing. Sometimes he does the really wrong thing. Sometimes he doesn't do anything, right? And that's us, if we're honest. But let's look at David's response as our final point. We see that there's a submissive prayer, and that's in verses 18 through 29. You know, sometimes when, when, when you have a kid and your kid really wants something and you say no to them, there's a few reactions they could have. They might, if you're, if you're lucky, say, uh, yeah, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I won't, I won't want that. I'll listen to what you're saying. 
Or they might throw a temper tantrum and make their opinion known like, hey, I really want this thing and I'm going to cry and stomp and be as loud as possible until you give it to me, right? Or it could be, and this, this maybe might be more teenager, sorry, all right, is that it's like, well, now I'm going to be mad and give you the silent treatment and ignore you, right? It's like, okay, <laughs> I guess peace and quiet for the next few days. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's that they, they I mean, this, this is what we do. That God says no to something, or God has a different answer, and I, I do this, okay, this is me. I get mad and say, Lord, that's not the way I wanted. I wanted this way, and you did that. And you're like, Miles, you're acting like a five-year-old. Yeah, yeah, that's how we act sometimes. That's how I act sometimes. Or, or, or I, I get mad with the Lord, and I, I give him the silent treatment and say, well, now I'm not going to talk to you, Lord, because you didn't do what I wanted. So I'm not going to pray to you. Who does that hurt? Me. It hurts me. Right? It doesn't hurt God. But what I... Let, Really, truly, this has happened to all of us, that we pray to the Lord, and man, we pray an earnest prayer. We're pouring our, our heart and soul into this prayer. It could be for sickness, for, for a family member, for a friend, for, for the future, a desire, a calling we have. And we say, Lord, can you please do this? And he says, no, and then your heart sinks. And your reaction could be, you know, kind of like Job's wife, curse God and die, just be done. Be throw a pity party, and I'm going to be mad, and God's not invited to my pity party, and I'm just going to be mad. We, we complain. That's what the Israelites did, and God, God talked to them a lot about that. And we're going to complain and make everyone else miserable because I'm miserable, and God said no to me. But you know why we act like that? Is sometimes when we pray, we expect God to perform for us. We say, God, I pray now. You, know, you do what I said. You're my genie, and I had three wishes, and I gave you a wish, so now do what I want. That's not how God works at all. Sometimes we, we, when God says no, we start to fight and resent. And say, no way could God be right. How dare he say no to me? And you know, you don't want to necessarily like say that out loud, but you know you're thinking. You're like, he said no. He said no, this is the only right way. But I love David. Because look at him in verse, verse 18. I love what he does. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord. What did he do? God said no. What did David do? He knelt. He knelt down. Some scholars would say that when, what it means by sitting is that he went on his knees and then he put his, his feet down where they're on the knees to show that he was an absolute in a position to say, in a posture to say, Lord, your will be done. I'm praying to you. I'm giving it to you. He goes and kneels. When God says no, one of our best reactions should not be to fight back, should not be to be mad, should not be to storm out. It should be, let me pray to him. Let me talk to him about it. And you know what David does? He sits before his Lord, and we continue on, and he says, Lord, I am so unworthy. Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that thou hast brought me hither to? What he's saying is, Lord, I, haven't, I shouldn't have even made it this far. Lord, you took me all this way through a whole bunch of bad things. Who am I to say, Lord, now you're failing? And we see in, in verses 18 through 21, I encourage you to, to read all this. We, for sake of time, we have to go a little bit faster, but it's so good. We see in verses 18 through 21 that what David does first is he rejoices in the present working of God. What he's doing is counting his blessings. He's not focusing on the one thing he doesn't have and that God said no to. He's focusing on the thousand things he does have that God has blessed him with. And then verses 22 through 24 what does he do? He, he remembers God's past working. Verse 22, he says, There is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee. 
There is no God like you. And then verse 23, there's no God who went and redeemed Israel and took Israel out and cared for these people that no one cared about except God. You worked in the past. I'm rejoicing the present of how you're working. And then he says, verses 25 through 29, and Lord, I pray for the future working. I pray that all those promises you made come to pass. And what he's saying really there is that, Lord, I trust you to take care of me. Lord, I trust you. Lord, you made me these four promises and you will bring them to pass. That is an amazing amount of humility. You know, what's cool to me is 10 times in those verses, 18 through 29, David calls himself servant, 10 times. And eight times, you know what he calls God? Master. He understood who was sovereign and who was not. He said, Lord, your will for this temple be done. I was doing it for you anyways. You do what you want. It's your temple, your way, your world. You're the creator. Dream or no dream, all your will. And, and he proved it too, right? He, he not only humbled himself, but then he went and set his son Solomon up for success. We see this in 1 Chronicles 22, 3 through 5. That David went, David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, for the doors of the gates, and for the joinings, and brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians, and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that has to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent. I love that word. That's a cool word, magnificent. Of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore make now preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. That's David showing, Lord, you said no to me, but you said yes that my son could build the temple. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set my son up for success so that he can build the temple. I'm laying it all out, all the supplies for him. You know what David knew? That God's plan was better. You know, David could have said, do you know who I am? I'm the king of Israel. And, or he could have said, God, let's, God let, let's bargain here. Let's say, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. But he says it so right. Verse 29. He says, Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. And with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. O Lord God has spoken it. For God has spoken. It's good enough for me. God said it. I trust him. I don't have to argue with him. I don't have to doubt him. I can just say, Lord, you said it. You haven't failed me yet, so why would you fail me in the future? You're still good and loving to me, so you're going to keep taking care of me. You spoke, I listen. Who am I, Lord, compared to you? That gave him all the comfort because he knew his God was great and caring. You know, I, I, was, I was reading this passage before, before going to bed at night, and I was kind of in a, in a complaining spirit, to be honest with you, because I was looking at it, and just kind of haphazardly, I, was, I told my wife, I said, how in the world do you apply the Davidic covenant? Like, what is that going to do? I'm talking to people who have daily lives, and it's like, we need to know the Davidic covenant because it points to Christ, and we're going to talk about how it applies in just a second. But I was like, how does this actually apply to our everyday life? It just seems kind of like, I'm going to list out these four promises. All right, have a good night. I was kind of complaining. And my wife very sweetly says, as she always does, she's like, well, I think it means God keeps his promises. And I was like, no, nah, it's too simple. I got to think of something way deeper than that because it's like God keeps his promises. <laughs> And I thought about it, and I felt convicted, and I was like, yeah, God does keep his promises. He does keep his promises. God has never failed me. Man, I got an awesome wife, first off. But I got an amazing God who cares about me and who says, God keeps his promises. God has always kept his promises. And God made a promise to David. He said, I'm giving you a temporary no 
to give you an everlasting yes. It's, it's an amazing God who, who fulfilled this all through Christ. Look at this. This is amazing. This is only God could do this. Look at me at Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. It says, And he shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest. And Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Familiar? Familiar? It's connecting? And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. What this is saying is that God fulfilled the promise and is fulfilling it today. And this kingdom of Christ will never end. And Mark 1.15 says, if we believe and repent, we get to be a part of that kingdom. And in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13 says, not only do I get to be a part of that kingdom, I get to reign with him. I get to be with, with this, this, this promise. I, I get to be a part of this if I believe in what my Savior has done. And just so we all know, because we can never forget what our Savior has done, is he came down to this earth as a babe, lived a perfect life, then died on the cross for my sin, for your sin, and then rose again the third day and gives everlasting life to those who believe on him. And with that promise, we see that there is a kingdom forever. And it's ushered in by the Savior. The promise has been kept. You know, I, I think about David in heaven. You know what he's not doing? He's not like, yeah, but I really wanted to build the temple. <laughs> like, I'm really mad, Lord. Like, you kept the promise and all, but I really wanted to build the temple. David's not upset right now. He's saying, God, I was just thinking about the temple, but you did this. Like, you did something amazing. You've given me life everlasting. You know, here today... We, we have people in all different walks of life, different scenarios, different stages of life. We have people who have dreamed and they have seen those dreams just kind of come crashing down. We all have dreams. You might not have thought about your dreams for a while, but you, you have dreams. For your family, for your job, for your ambition. There's people who even he wanted to go to a certain job, wanted to go to ministry. And it just seems like, man, everything kept falling down. I really wanted to do this. I felt called to do this. I felt like this was the perfect thing to do. I had it all set up. And man, Lord, it might have been 20 years ago and it might have been yesterday. But it all came tumbling down. We have people who have prayed and said, God, we, we need help. And it seemed like he, he wasn't necessarily there or maybe he didn't help you the way you thought or, or God I can't lose this job and then I lost the job God I need help financially it seems like there's no money coming in and I've been praying and God it seems like you keep saying no I said God I know this is hard God God healed them and God didn't and they passed away God saved them save save this person Lord that just needs you and it seems like he was silent on it God, this is my, 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 my career. I want this career, and, and it's not going the way I want it to go. Lord, this is the one I wanted to marry, and it hasn't gone the way I want to go. This is the college I wanted to go to, not going the way I wanted it to go. And then some are just so scared to death to dream anymore because they're scared if it fails. There's this quote that I saw by Michelle Kruger. She said, God's no to our prayers is always a yes to his providential purposes. What does that mean? It means I can be confident that God is sovereign. It means he's above all, that he's sovereignly working, and that he's sovereignly working for my good and his glory. And God hasn't once ignored me. God hasn't once been mistaken in his choice. He's working. When we trust in God, a no is not the end, but the beginning of a new plan that God has. Did the no happen? Did he say no? Yes. Are we going to focus on the no? 
are we going to move forward to see, okay, God, you said no to that. That means you got something even better. Don't miss the new beautiful work he's doing right in front of your eyes. You know, this title, I almost, almost named it Broken Dreams. But I think it's more like scattered dreams because the dreams weren't broken because that makes it seem like it's hopeless and it can never be fixed. What it means is that it was scattered dreams. The dreams he thought were going this way, but it's been scattered out to be even better, to be bigger. To be, it was shifted. It was changed. It's God working. God knows so much. God controls all. All of this world, he sustains it. He's creator. And through all that, he still loves you and cares for you. Now, I go back to missions conference that, that Pastor Jen, Dennis Jane said this, and it stuck with me, is, Lord, it's not, Lord, I surrender to do what I want, and you have to say yes. No, it's, Lord, I surrender, open hands, full trust, lead me. And then he does. Let's pray.